If there is a a value that we cherish in this country, um, it is probably, among other values, the value of freedom. Individual freedom, liberty of choice, the ability to do what I want, when I want, without the fear of external interference or, or even constraint. It's woven into the fabric of our culture, isn't it? The language of rights is woven into the fabric of our culture. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is an inalienable right the Declaration of Independence tells us, to pursue happiness. First ten amendments to the Constitution, what do we call them? The Bill of Rights. Why are they there? They're there because anti-federalists were concerned about the overreaching power of the federal government. And they are there to preserve and protect freedoms secured by the Constitution. Now, freedom is a good thing. Choice is a good thing. Rights are a good thing. But what happens when your choice, your freedom, your perceived rights collide with mine? When our oldest daughter was four years old, she was in the nursery with some other little children, and there was a sudden screech from a little boy about half her age. She was maybe four, he was two or three. The nursery worker walked over, saw that he was crying, looked at my daughter. My daughter looked up very confidently and said, I don't know why he's crying, I have what I want. (laughs) Now, you know what happens when you come into the church? Here's what happens when you come into the church, even in this culture. You know what happens when the gospel begins to take hold? You know what happens when grace begins to permeate the culture, the life, the thinking of a group of Christians? Love trumps freedom. Love trumps choice. Love trumps rights. That, it seems to me, is what Paul is getting at in these chapters, 14 and the first half of 15. It's the best way to summarize, it seems to me, what the Apostle Paul is after. Love takes precedence over my freedom. Chapter 14, verse 1 through 15, 13 is the outworking of what Paul has been saying In some earlier verses, chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly love is the literal rendering. Then again in 14.8, owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another fulfills the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What we're dealing with in 14 and 15 is the practical, day-to-day, 
in the life of the church, working out of the law of love, the business of love. Now let's make three observations plus look at the context. Let's remember the context here and then make these these three observations. The context into which Paul is speaking is the Roman churches, multiple churches, in houses most likely. If you look at chapter 16, you'll see that a greeting is sent to Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila and to the church in their house. If you look at Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 16, there are two groups of people mentioned, quite likely two additional churches. So this this letter is being written to these people in these churches throughout Rome. And they come, and, and these churches are made up of both Jews and Gentiles, if you remember from last week. And these Jews come to these churches with certain scruples about foods and special observances. They have scruples about these things. They were steeped in Old Testament dietary regulations. For centuries they had practiced these things. I said to a couple people this last week, I'm really glad that these dietary restrictions have been lifted. It would be horrible to live at the beach for eight years and not be able to eat lobster. And it would be horrible to contemplate moving to Memphis and not be able to eat pork, one of the capitals of barbecue. But they were steeped in these practices, and they'd observed them for generations and generations and centuries. And not only were they steeped in these practices, but they were likely concerned that in a common meal, a meal at which both Jew and Gentile would be present, They were concerned about who had handled particular foods and whether when what had been done with them before they were handled at the common meal. They carried these scruples about cleanliness and dietary regulations, and they were very sensitive to these things. And then there were the days. There was the tradition of feasts, Passover, Pentecost, booths, all of these, along with the Day of Atonement, the the fast of the Day of Atonement, which was followed by a feast. There are all these special days that were a part of the annual calendar of the Jews, and they had scruples about these things. And so here they are. They're coming to faith. They're embracing Jesus as the Messiah. They're finding their way into these churches where there are Gentiles and where the Gentiles dominate the scene. These churches quite probably were dominated by Gentiles. And so Jews are trying to find a home in this place, and they come with these scruples. And you can see that there's a potential for great conflict, isn't there? And that's what Paul is concerned to address. So that's the context. Here are some observations. First, a reminder for everyone, them as well as us. Second, a word to the weak. And third, a word to the strong. A reminder to everyone. First, something we alluded to last week, but I think it bears repeating. It should be mentioned again, and it should be worked out a bit. Remember that this situation in Rome is different from the situation that Paul addressed in his letter to the Galatians. Situation is in Rome is different from the situation in Galatians. But let me suggest to you, the situation in Rome could come perilously close 
to the situation that obtained and had to be addressed by Paul in Galatia. What was threatening the churches in Galatia was what we refer to as the Judaizing controversy, the Judaizing element. And Paul saw the gospel as being at stake. The very gospel, the very essence of the gospel. In that case, and and just follow along with me, and you'll see how perilously close Even the situation, though Paul addresses it differently, addresses it from a different perspective, comes perilously close to the situation that he's dealing with in Galatia. What was happening in Galatia is that there were people who at some level had acknowledged Christ to be the Messiah. And they had begun to associate together and had begun to associate with other Jews But as Gentiles were converted and were not circumcised according to the law, they were offended. They were offended. In effect, this Judaizing element that at some level, at some degree, had come to acknowledge Christ was requiring that converts from paganism become good Jews in order to become good Christians. Requiring of them that they be circumcised in order to be admitted into the fellowship. And their influence, if you read Galatians 1 and 2, their influence was so compelling and so strong and their withdrawal from Gentiles so threatening that even Peter and Barnabas became confused and were led astray. Again, you can read it in Galatians 1 and 2. And Paul, he recounts this in Galatians 2, Paul publicly, publicly challenged Peter because he said he was not keeping in step with the gospel. He was not keeping in step with the free offer of the gospel. Here's what the issue was in Galatia. The issue in Galatia was the ground or the basis of a person's acceptance with God and in the church. What is the basis? What is the ground of a person's acceptance with God and thereby into the fellowship of the church? This is important. So very important that we think carefully about this. And that we actually engage in some thoughtful, reflective self-examination about this. The basis upon which I am accepted by God And the basis upon which I am accepted into the church are the same. There's not a difference. You get one, you get the other. Without the one, you don't have the other. The basis upon which a person is accepted by God and accepted into the church are the same. Jesus Christ and faith in him Plus nothing. Plus nothing. 
That was the issue. And these people who were influencing Peter and Barnabas and calling them to withdraw, who were in a tacit sort of way, Peter and Barnabas and others, were in a tacit sort of way adding something to simple faith in the finished work of Christ for acceptance with God and admission into the family of God. And the thing they were adding, as we've said, was circumcision. It was Jesus plus. It was Jesus plus. They were saying, if you're a Gentile, if you're a Gentile, you're welcome here if... You profess faith in Christ and are circumcised. That's what Paul so vigorously and vehemently opposed in Galatians. He calls it another gospel. In fact, he says it is no gospel at all. Now, why is this important? Here's why. Because it's been my experience in 35 plus years in ministry that we can come perilously close to doing this very thing in the life of the church. We can come perilously close to adding something to Jesus as the basis or the ground upon which people are accepted into the fellowship. And we can, we can leave the impression. that it's Jesus plus something else that gains you admission into the kingdom of God and acceptance with God. It could be politics. One of our members was very honest last week with me, very honest after worship, and admitted that a person's party affiliation can get in the way of fellowship. Can be a kind of an add-on to Jesus. But you see, the ground, the ground of our acceptance with one another is the same as the ground of our acceptance with God, and that ground is Jesus in all of his sufficiency received by faith plus nothing. It is not Jesus plus party affiliation. Here's another. And this certainly was in play both in Galatia and in Rome. Race or ethnicity. Race or ethnicity. If race or ethnicity become requirements for acceptance, violence is done to the gospel. It is Jesus plus race. Now, if you read through the letters, if you read through Acts, if you look closely at the life of the Apostle Paul, one of Paul's deep and abiding concerns is to show that the gospel dismantles those barriers. The gospel dismantles barriers of ethnicity or race or cultural distinction. And Paul would say there's simply no room for these things in the gospel. Let 
makes race an add-on. Jesus plus something in order to be accepted. Look, you do violence to the gospel if you add anything, anything to Jesus. Because admission into the church is on the same ground of admission into the presence of God. People, people ask, I've had this conversation, our elders have talked about this. I don't like to say that we require an inquirer's class in order for people to become members of this church. I don't like to use the word requirement. How can I require more of someone to join an earthly visible expression of the church than is required for admission into the eternal kingdom of God? Do I think it's wise? Absolutely. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. I mean, it's good to get to know each other. It's good for you to get to know me and know what our church is about. But being wise is very different from making something a requirement. Right? Here's another one, and I think this is a particular danger for us in our Reformed circles, but it can happen anywhere. It is the danger of Jesus plus a theological view. Jesus plus a theological view. Look, I know who I am, folks. As best I know myself, I embrace with all my heart the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms as representing the system of doctrine taught in the Scriptures. It's an ordination vow. I was grilled about that stuff this last week as a part of my transfer to Covenant Presbytery in Memphis. But I would never, ever, ever, I hope, even hint that acceptance with me or in the life of the church, and certainly not acceptance with the God of heaven, is based upon a right apprehension and articulation of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Large and Shorter Catechisms. I've heard people say those should be requirements for membership in a local church. I've heard it. It does violence to the gospel to me. Heard a fairly well-known theologian one time ask the question, will Arminians be in heaven? Some of you may not know what an Arminian is. It's not that ethnic group that lives uh, over at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. It's actually a theological perspective, and the long controversy is the controversy since the days of the Reformation between Arminians and Calvinists. And this theologian was asked the question, will, be, will Arminians be in heaven? Leaned into the microphone and said, barely. <laughs> and it's funny, and it's a humorous story. But you see what that does? That comes perilously close. Perilously close to saying that the ground of one's salvation is Jesus plus being a Calvinist. It seems to me that there's a failure here, and this is a point to be made and discussed perhaps at another time. There's a There is a failure here, it seems to me, to distinguish between the essentials of the Christian faith and what we refer to 
as secondary matters. The essentials of the faith are summarized in historic creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And these creeds center upon the triune God. They center upon his works in creation and providence and redemption with the person and work of Jesus Christ at the center. And secondary matters are important, folks. See, this is what I love about the church. It seems to me that there are two different ways to approach these secondary things. One is to minimize their significance and not talk about them at all. And when you do that, it seems to me, you present a wrong impression to the world around you that there really is a kind of a harmony and a unity which really doesn't exist. Because people are going to talk about these things, and what ends up happening very often is mortars end up being lobbed. And that doesn't speak well of the church before the watching world. There's another way to deal with these things, and I think, I believe in my heart of hearts, that it actually deepens love for one another and unity in Christ across these theological distinctions. And that is simply to say, brother, I love you. We are going to stand together before the face of Christ. But let's disagree about this and let's disagree vigorously, searching the scriptures. And if we come to different conclusions, we do so as brothers. And I may think you're nuts, and you may think I'm nuts. I had this conversation with, over election, predestination. I have it over infant baptism. I mean, I have these conversations with people all the time, and they think I'm nuts. And I think they're crazy for not being able to see it. But they're my brothers and sisters. And we are not bound together by a theological view. We are bound together by a common commitment the person and work of Jesus Christ, the triune God of heaven and earth. That's what was going on in Galatians, and I would just caution us that what was going on in Rome, it seems to me, as I read and reflect and think about Paul and his encouragements, his admonitions here, there is the great danger of something like Galatia emerging in Rome, coming perilously close to a Jesus plus something else for acceptance. But as we say in the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one, when we're asked about our only hope in life and in death, our only hope in life and in death, is in Jesus Christ and him crucified, dead, buried, and raised for our salvation, plus nothing. Plus nothing. Purely, simply, Jesus. Now, it seems that these Romans were pretty much together about that. I quoted one commentator last week who said, if, if these Roman Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, had been asked, they would have been in perfect agreement about chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. But when it came to practice, the outworking of practice, the practice of the Christian life, that's where the distinctions began to manifest themselves and become a potential problem. And you can see how you could get to that place, can't you? 
It can very easily become Jesus plus something. It can very easily become Jesus plus what you eat or don't eat, what you drink or don't drink, what you wear or don't wear. I got converted in the 60s. All right? I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count what I looked like when I got converted out of the 60s. I mean, really? Making the length of hair a condition for admission into the body of Christ for acceptance with God? Really? Making dress a condition? Sorry, I wore tattered blue jeans and a blue work shirt. That's where it came from. Really make those things conditions upon which we fellowship together? You see how you get perilously close to Jesus plus something? So, here's the word to the week. Paul, Paul wants to speak a word, and we'll continue talking about this next week. He wants to speak a word to the weak, and the weak are those who have scruples about these things. They have scruples about what to eat. They have scruples about what days to observe. They are those who have embraced Christ, but concerning, this is the key thing, but concerning matters about which the scriptures either have spoken or make no requirement or express no prohibition, they had scruples. They had scruples. Paul is admonishing them that they not pass judgment upon people whose scruples differ from them. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 14. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you? To pass judgment. Don't pass judgment. Paul goes on to say in this passage, doesn't he? That in his judgment, God, Jesus, has declared all things clean. All foods clean. He did that in that vision that Peter had in Acts chapter 10 where the sheet is dropped down. And on that sheet are animals of all kinds, both clean and unclean. And Jesus said to Peter, don't say this is unclean when I'm saying it's clean. I mean, Peter's audacity is just all over that passage once again. Don't say something is unclean when I am declaring it to be clean. And Jesus has made all these foods permissible for people to eat, including Jews who have scruples about them. But they still have scruples. And in their scrupulosity, they're passing judgment, probably on other Jews who have gained a degree of freedom with respect to food, as well as Gentiles, they're passing judgment on those people. And Paul is saying, you can't do that. You can't pass judgment on your brothers and sisters. I want you to notice, and I find this so encouraging, 
where it is that Paul grounds this admonition to the weak. He said that Christ has declared all these foods to be clean and permissible. I think if Paul had been asked with respect to days, he would have said Christ fulfills everything that is portrayed in the Passover and Pentecost and the Day of Atonement and and the Feast of Booths and all these other special. They're all fulfilled in Christ. Notice that Paul doesn't ground his admonition on his own conviction that foods are permissible and that these days need not be observed. This is beautiful. He grounds his admonition to the weak upon this fact, that the one whom they are judging is the servant of Christ. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who's the other? The other is Jesus. Who is this one whom you're inclined or disposed to pass judgment on? The servant of Jesus Christ. Folks, you are not my judge and I am not your judge. You are not my master and I am not your master. You and I both have one master and he will be both your judge and my judge. And the one who is master and judge is savior to both of us. To both of us. Paul's inviting these folks, as it were, to lift their eyes up above these little internecine conflicts and disputes. He's getting them, encouraging them to lift their eyes up above all of that, to fix their gaze once again upon Jesus. And their common love for and identity in Jesus. I find this to be a tremendously encouraging and comforting thing. Where the apostle says, verse 4, He, meaning this one, this one upon whom you're passing judgment, He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make Him stand. Verse 5, he tells each of us, that we should be fully convinced in our own minds about what it is that we do. Verse 10, he tells us that each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 12, that each of us will give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ. But I love that fourth verse because there we are, you and I, standing together in the presence of Jesus, being summoned to give an account. And what is it that will enable you to stand? What is it that will enable me to stand? We will stand together in the presence of Christ because Christ himself will enable us to stand. I spoke to a bunch of high school kids this last week and the guy who introduced me said all kinds of wonderful, untrue things about me. In one of the talks to those kids, I said, you know, Bob said some wonderful things about me, but they were mostly untrue. Here's what I can say to you. When I get to the end of my life, there will be one answer to the question, how did I get here? And the answer will be Jesus Christ. When I stand in the presence of Christ, and Christ admits me, into the glorious consummation of the eternal kingdom of God. And the question is asked, how did you get here? There will be one answer to that question. For you and for me, Jesus Christ. 
Not because I did eat or didn't eat. Not because I passed judgment or didn't. Look, we do those kinds of things all the time. Isn't it a glorious thing that the grace of Jesus Christ overcomes all of those imperfections and failings and enables us to stand. So the encouragement to the weak is don't pass judgment. Don't pass judgment. Your brother, you and your brother are going to stand before Jesus and be upheld as you stand there by him. And then to the strong, to those who have liberty, to those who have freedom to eat anything, who are persuaded that alcohol is permitted. Drink is mentioned here. Drink becomes an issue in the life of a church. Lots of other things that become issues in the life of the church. Things like how we educate our children. Again, things like dress and, and length of hair and, and tattoos and, and various other things. To the strong, the apostle is saying, don't despise those who see it differently. Don't judge, don't despise. The word despise in the original means to make of no account. To make of no account. To despise one is to dismiss that one. It is to say, you don't exist. You are of no account. Is to find that person contemptible. And what is the effect of that? Paul suggests the effect of that is rather than walking in love to destroy the work of God. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Sober language, strong, strong language. So the admonition to the weak is don't pass judgment. The admonition to the strong is don't despise. And all of this is the outworking of love. Things are to look different here. They're they're to be different here. And all because at the end of the day, folks, you and I have been dealt with differently. Right? Jesus has never said to you or me, It's me plus something else. Jesus has never said, do this and then you can have me. The gospel is that Jesus gives himself freely, liberally, lavishly for those who don't deserve to be a part of the group. And the one requirement, the one requirement is to believe in him. And isn't it remarkable that the one thing he requires, he also provides the faith necessary in order to believe. He satisfies every condition for acceptance and places no barriers in the path. So, don't judge, don't despise. You run the risk of damaging, of destroying the work of Christ. You run the risk of damaging one for whom Christ has died. We're going to explore this a little bit more deeply 
next week, particularly as we think about the responsibilities of the strong, that they not put stumbling blocks in the way of the weak. God, help us. God, help us. We need grace in this. Let's pray together.